inspiring stories of recovery, practical tips for wellness, developing a culture of care. Welcome to Blue and Beyond, your official Air Force Wounded Warrior Program podcast. Lieutenant Colonel Juliana Walker and Master Sergeant Stephen Dow, it's great to have you with us today. You've both been with our program for a while now, and we can't thank you enough for coming to share your experience with our listeners. Before we get directly to your testimonies, please share a little bit about yourselves. Tell us where you're from and how you came to join the Air Force. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Juliana Walker, go by Julie, and I am from the DMV, District of Columbia, Washington, and Maryland, stationed at the Pentagon. Been in the service over 29 years, started off as a cadet at the Air Force Academy and have had an opportunity to travel all over the world. Was a military brat to begin with called Colorado Springs home and was commissioned as a second lieutenant at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. I am Master Sergeant Stephen Dow. I am from Augusta, Maine. I joined the Air Force as a C-5 crew chief. I've been in the Air Force 18 years now. I'm stationed at Dover Air Force Base currently and I joined the Air Force to get away from a toxic home life. Didn't have parents that dealt very well with me and my sibling. Ended up in a group home and that's where I met my wife. We joined the service together. I made it through all basic training and everything and the wars began. 9-11 happened, the wars began and I like to deploy. Great, thank you. Colonel Walker, let's start with you first. What do you want to share with us today? I wanted to talk a little bit about my story. A few years ago in Baltimore, Maryland, I stayed in a place that was very similar to a Fisher House. It's called the Hope Lodge and it's run by a private organization. And while I was there, I received a small book That book had a quote in it that I'll never forget. The quote was from an author who wrote a book called The Truth About Butterflies. Her name is Nancy Steffen. And the quote says, things we don't want to happen but have to accept, things we don't want to know but have to learn, and people we can't live without but have to let go. And that quote reminds me of my personal journey, specifically with cancer, and then subsequently a brain tumor and brain surgery to remove that tumor. I didn't want it to happen, but one day I was sleeping and woke up and I just happened to have my hand over my chest and I felt a lump. And it was a lump that I had not felt before and that wasn't there before. Matter of fact, I was so shocked, I actually went to the emergency room and asked them, hey, can you do an ultrasound or something to see if it's a cyst or if there's something else going on? And they did, they did an ultrasound and they said, we see something, but we're not overly concerned about it, but you probably need to go to a breast center. So they sent me to another military base that had a breast center and had a mammogram done, which is supposed to be kind of the standard. Nothing on the mammogram showed. Then they said, well, let's do another ultrasound. Sat with the radiologist and she said, 70, 30, it's nothing, but I recommend you get a MRI and biopsy done. Now, the interesting thing is when you don't have a family history and when you're younger, a lot of times they won't really do a lot of MRIs and things for you. I was on a delayed schedule. They were like, ah, you know, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. We can schedule you for the biopsy, but we don't really think you need an MRI. So I went to my patient advocate and I said, please refer me downtown because I want to make sure that this is nothing serious. In the meantime, got the biopsies done, got a phone call and had to hear the three words that I didn't want to hear and learn things that I didn't want to know. And that is you have cancer. Not only was it you have cancer, but you have bilateral cancer. You have 18 to 24 months to live. So what do you do with that when you hear that? Wow, that had to be really hard to hear. How do you process some information like that? What were you thinking about all of this at the time? My world just went silent, honestly. And I began to just think, 
let me Google, let me search for cures, for treatment, for anything that could possibly extend my life. And when I went to the internet, Johns Hopkins happened to pop up. I didn't know a lot about it because I was healthy and really hadn't had a lot of medical issues. Called the number and it was completely the wrong office. It was like a research office, but they were kind enough to refer me to a medical oncologist. Once I met with that medical oncologist, they said, we're getting some different results than the base. The stage of your cancer is different, but we're afraid it has spread to your lymph nodes. I immediately asked for my case to be transferred up to Johns Hopkins and started what was a long process of treatment. I ended up getting a radical double mastectomy with over two dozen lymph nodes removed from my left and right side, months of chemotherapy, radiation therapy, hormone therapy to freeze my eggs, and what was successive surgeries for reconstructions, 17 to be exact. I was exhausted, I felt alone, and I wondered, what am I gonna do? I had just gotten the news about a life-threatening illness, and the thing that worried me the most was telling my boss about it. I was afraid to death to tell my boss that I was sick and that I was gonna be out of the fight for possibly an extended period of time, and that's kinda sad. It's kind of sad that that's what I worried about. But the good news is, in all of this, I didn't have to go through it alone. The worries I did have about telling my boss, you know, they were really supportive. They actually came to the hospital and they checked on me and I had family and friends that were there. So it really made a big difference. I also thought to myself, I can't be the only sick airman in the Air Force. I had had a lot of joint assignments, so I thought, well, maybe I can get with the Army's Wounded Warrior Program, because <laughs> I knew they had a Wounded Transition Battalion. I didn't know if it was just for Army, so I inquired, and they said, no, I'm sorry, you're Air Force. <laughs> so I literally went back to the internet again and put in Wounded Warrior Air Force, and the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program, not Wounded Warrior Project, but AFW2 popped up. I called the 1-800 number, spoke to a gentleman, Mr. Douglas Butler, and said, uh, help, <laughs> I'm sick, and uh, I've got this going on, and he said, you should have been in this program. He actually enrolled me in the program and said, I don't know if you know this, but there are a lot of resources that are available to you, and you don't necessarily have to have a seriously or very seriously illness, injury, or wound that's combat-related. It can be non-combat-related. I finally, at that moment, realized, you know what, the Air Force does care and he enrolled me in the program. I started getting some emails about attending these events, which they called care events, and I was like, you know what, I'm gonna give it a try. I have been very, very blessed to participate in just about every program that the Air Force Wounded Warrior offers, from the adaptive sports side, to the Recovering Airman Mentorship Program, or what they call RAMP, to the Ambassador Program, telling our story and sharing information, to the Resiliency Programs, where we do all kinds of things like yoga and essential oils and painting with a purpose and using music therapy, where we do what we call Rock to Recovery. Everything that they've had to offer. And then my husband's been able to do the Caregiver Program. So it's been really, really a good thing for me and my family. I encourage all of us to just remember as we take a tactical pause and talk with each other, let it not just be one pause. Let it be something that we're doing on a regular basis, talking with each other, caring about each other. Your story is so inspiring. I hope you know that you encourage all of us with your strength and positive outlook. Thanks for being such an amazing example for our warriors. Master Sergeant Dow, can you share with our listeners how you got to where you are today? Though very different, your story and experience is no less compelling. Tell us about your journey. I set out on a couple deployments. I was deployed to Baghdad International Airport 
2003 during the invasion and I was deployed again to Balad in 2004 and found out during my 2004 deployment that my wife come down with an illness and come to find out it was uh, stage four brain cancer. And in 2006, I lost my wife to brain cancer. She was my world and I didn't know what to do. Being raised Catholic and having belief in that religion, suicide was not an option. But suicide by somebody else's hand was definitely an option. I went to my UDM, went to my leadership, and I asked for the first thing they had downrange. They said they had a joint expeditionary tasking, which back in the day when the Army was overtaxed, the Air Force would fill slots. So I became a truck commander running convoys through Iraq. And I deployed in August of 2006, and I was a truck commander in the Triangle of Death. That name appealed to me because this was what I was looking for. I was looking for a way out because I wanted nothing to do with life. I wanted nothing to do with continuing on. I wanted to be back with my wife. I completed that deployment. I saw some things that you can't unsee, and it made my mental health situation a lot worse. And in those days, it was taboo to go to mental health for any reason. I just kept taking on assignments, deployed several more times. I became a flying crew chief. I flew for six years in the C-5. I took all the dangerous assignments. I took all the Christmas, Thanksgiving, holiday-type missions, just in the hopes something would happen, just in the hopes that I wouldn't return. The things that occurred from that made my mental health situation even worse, and I didn't realize it at the time. Instead of working on me, working on progressing, I threw myself into my job. I became one of the squadron's top men because I was always available. I always said, yes, I'll take a mission. I'll take the holiday schedule. I'll always do this. I ended up spending 16 hours a day at work and became one of the squadron leadership's favorite because I was always available. Through all these deployments, through all these extra work, extra everything, my injuries started to pile up and the medical group ended up putting me on oxycodone. And I was on oxycodone for quite a while. It kind of distracted me from the real world. I continued to take the oxycodone to help with my pain, it helped with what I thought was my mental situation, but all it did was make me more closed off. And I just was work, home, work, home. I was okay with that. My personal relationship suffered. I didn't have any desire to go out and meet anybody. I just stayed home. The burden grew and grew and grew. I deployed for my eighth time in October of 2014 to Kandahar Airfield. In November 2014, a rocket attack occurred on Kandahar Airfield with a, what they call a complex attack with a perimeter breach. A rocket blast landed too close to me. The concussion broke my neck. And somehow, with smooth talking or because my limbs were functional, the Roll 3 surgeon, he was a Navy captain, allowed me to stay in theater with the injury because I did not want to go back to home station. It came upon me that I did not want to leave theater. I wanted to not come back in one piece. But in the end, it always comes down to getting my troops home because I just put everybody else first and I don't take care of myself. I did come home at the end of that six-month deployment. My injuries were worse because my muscles had to adapt to take care of my broken neck. They determined that I had a separation at my C6, C7 cervical spine and I needed a fusion. Through all that time, while I was waiting for my fusion, I still worked 12 hours a day back at home station. I still did everything they wanted me to do. I always thought to myself, who's gonna take care of the airmen if I'm not there? Who's gonna take care of everybody? Through all that, I made my situation worse. So I had my fusion, they had upped my dosage of oxycodone. At this point now, I'm at 10 years consistent on uh, high-powered narcotics. I come back to work after my convalescent leave and I get put into production. Production is just a job where you run the aircraft, you run everyday maintenance, and I was still pulling several hour days to avoid my situation. I became the top senior NCO in the unit. I was the Lance P. Sijon Award winner. I received a group signature on my EPR without being promotion eligible. 
and then it all came crashing down. In November of that year, I had a uh, disagreement with the squadron commander over an illegal order. From that point forward, it started to spiral. The DOC survey came out and I was blamed for several comments. I had nothing to do with them. I found out that I may be losing my position. Through it all, all the depression and everything that's been happening over the years piled up. And I told my lieutenant, don't be looking for me after the holidays because I can't do it anymore. I don't have it in me anymore. I just can't do it. She asked me what that meant. And I told her, I said, you could read it to however you want to read into it, but I won't be around. And she's like, well, can we talk about this? What could I do to get you to Walter Reed? So I talked to her for a little bit and I decided to go inpatient at Walter Reed. Seven days into my stay at Walter Reed, inpatient, I found out that I was the subject of now a command-directed investigation into me by that same squadron commander. He had had a commander's call where he briefed everybody not to speak to me because I was a subject of the investigation, but I was being investigated for a series of incidents that had supposedly occurred. I returned from Walter Reed. Nobody visited me in Walter Reed. Nobody looked out for me. My mental health therapist was the first person to intervene, and she got me into combat trauma treatment, found out that I had a TBI, and I spent the next three months at Fort Belvoir while they conducted their investigation. While I was at Fort Belvoir, I started to get actual treatment. I got treatment for PTSD, which I didn't realize I had. I got treatment for traumatic brain injury, which I didn't realize I had had several of. And then one day, doing my thing, trying to get some cardio, feel good, and I got hit by a car in the crosswalk at the base hospital. And I thought to myself, you know what? This is done. I'm just done. My luck is terrible. My life is terrible. Once I'm done here, I'm going to go through the motions. I'm going to get my treatment done, and I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to kill myself. You've alluded a few times to our overwhelming urge to drive on when we're hurting. When did it change for you, and how did you finally get the help you needed? One day, I was in the hospital elevator, and I came across a couple, and they were wearing Air Force Wounded Warrior hoodies. And I was like, what is that all about? So I asked her, I was like, excuse me, ma'am, what is that, what is that hoodie all about? She's like, oh, well, the Air Force Wounded Warrior is kind of like the Army. Uh, are you in the Army? I said, no, I'm in the Air Force. She goes, you're in the Air Force? What are you here for? So I told her, I said, I'm here for combat trauma. I have PTSD. I have a TBI. And she's like, oh, I need to talk to you. You don't know about the Wounded Warrior program? Nope, I have never heard of it. She's like, well, I'm here for my birthday dinner because I didn't want to go anywhere else. I had all my appointments today. Is it all right if I sit with you and tell you all about the program? I was like, absolutely. We got all of our food, sat down, and for probably a good hour and a half, Lieutenant Colonel Juliana Walker talked to me all about the program. She got really irritated that I didn't know anything about it and that nobody had looked after me, and she set forth to get me enrolled in the program herself. What a great story of self-awareness and connectedness. After you learned about AFW2 and got enrolled in the program, how did it change for you? How did Colonel Walker help you get engaged? I returned to Dover Air Force Base. I found that I was facing some more serious allegations, but it didn't really matter because now I had something to look forward to. My focus was no longer looking at self-destruction. And I went to my first care event at Joint Base Andrews. So this is my one year anniversary in the program. And I've gotten involved with adaptive sports, which I really enjoy. And I set my focuses towards Air Force trials. I've got a great group of friends that I've met, long lasting, lifelong friends. I've got enrolled in the RAMP program so I could help other airmen that are going through the same problems. I went through the ambassador program so that I can preach the mission of Air Force Wounded Warrior to senior leaders because it's very clear that there's not a widespread knowledge of how we take care of our fellow airmen. I haven't looked back since. And even now with new developments, I'm looking at some serious neurological problems and some serious heart problems. But I have no fear in it because I know that I'm taken care of in the Wounded Warrior program. 
I'm just gonna look forward to doing whatever it is I gotta do to, to keep going and spreading the message and getting the help to others that really, really need it because it's really helped me. Helped me turn it all around, complete 180. And I've been gaining my life back, one step at a time. So now one of the great things about this program is that we have a brand new family in Air Force Wounded Warrior program. My new brother, my mentee, we have a mentor-mentee relationship, but we also are friends. That's a wonderful thing because we are now connected, connected for life, not just with each other, but with other wounded warriors that we've met throughout the program, and that connection can't be broken. Hey, we are so lucky to have the two of you with us to help spread our message. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? I just want to tell you a little unique fact that you might not know. First, I'm extremely competitive, and I come from a family of competitors. In fact, we were all so competitive, we would watch game shows on TV and just compete with each other. When I was a second lieutenant stationed at a base, Norton Air Force Base in San Bernardino, California, and since we were in Southern California, we figured, you know what? We should audition for Family Feud. And so, sure enough, my family came in and we went and auditioned for Family Feud and we made it. My family was on Family Feud and this was in the early 90s and so this wasn't the Steve Harvey Family Feud and it wasn't quite as old as the Richard Dawson Kissing Guy Family Feud. This was the guy in between and his name was Ray Combs. And Ray was a comedian and he was a great, charming man that uh, made everybody feel at ease and comfortable and he was funny and we really had a good time. Our family had a great time with him. By the way, we won the first game. We had a second family, we lost to the second family. But I tell you that story because the interesting piece is that that host, Ray Combs, just a few years later, committed suicide. And you could not have told me by the way he looked and he acted that there was anything going on. And what I learned from that is that what goes on on the exterior, what you see on the exterior, isn't always what's going on in somebody. Apparently he was really dying inside. I feel really bad about that, but it reminds me that when you look at someone, you can see them smile and you can see them act a certain way, but that doesn't mean that everything is okay. As we're in this climate of resiliency and taking a tactical pause to check on each other and talk, you know, have real talk about suicide, I hope that we will remember that it's so important to just have a conversation and be available to people because what you see is not always what is. This has been an episode of Blue and Beyond, your official Air Force Wounded Warrior Program podcast. Connect with us on social media to keep up with all things AFW2 and be on the lookout for the next Blue and Beyond podcast.